as usual. I probably have more content than we have time for. Uh, So let me pray for us. Father, bless us now as we look at your word together. Uh, We pray that your spirit would give us wisdom, insight, and understanding into your word, and that ultimately we would come to see Jesus more, and that uh, we would be transformed by him even as we look uh, to the ways in which he transforms us and makes us more like himself. Do that now for your glory and our good. Amen. Uh, Okay, quick review of where we were last week. Um, We talked about one of the major reasons that we don't view the sacraments as something critical uh, to the Christian life is due to um, our Gnostic tendencies. Gnosticism is this uh, ancient heresy that said, uh, really what you need to do is escape from your body. You would acquire some sort of knowledge. Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. So you'd have, uh, acquire some sort of knowledge which would then enable you to be freed from the physical realities of the world. And so we carry on some of these tendencies to think that there's really no way that Jesus could give us himself through physical objects, okay? So we struggle sometimes with thinking, what are we doing in the Lord's Supper? How could water and baptism be significant? Um, and so that's part of the, the struggle we have in looking at the sacraments. One of the things that we talked about that was so important as an antidote to that is Jesus himself, the one who is God and took on physical flesh, uh, the one who now in, is embodied, is in a physical, resurrected glorified body. Uh, talk some about how uh, the creation was good uh, and that the whole world will be made new in the end. There will be a physical new creation. Um, talk just briefly about how uh, we wanted to answer the question last week, what are the sacraments? We said the baptism and Lord's Supper. And then I have two quotes there from the Westminster Standards, which are our doctrinal standards. Uh, they're on the sheet for you. What is a sacrament? Sacraments, a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. And then from uh, the Confession of Faith, chapter 27, paragraph 1, sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. They were directly instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our relationship to him. They're also intended to make a visible distinction between those who belong, in the church, belong to the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to bind Christians to the service of God in Christ according to his word. So that's where we were last week. We answered the question, what are sacraments? The second question that we didn't get to that we'll deal with right now is, how do the sacraments work? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> what we did say are two, we went through two misconceptions of how they don't work, okay? Um, somebody said I say okay a lot. I'm getting that out publicly right now so that you can shame me for my vocal pauses and I can have some accountability so I don't keep saying that. Somebody who listened to a recording. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Two ways that the sacraments don't work. One is this sort of automatic, mechanical, magic blessing sort of view that just by virtue of doing this thing, these spiritual blessings are conveyed. Uh, independent of God's blessing, independent of the Spirit's work, they just sort of happen. That's one mistaken view, that it's an automatic sort of thing. The second, probably more common view that we would be prone to fall into is one of a symbolic memorial empty sign view. What this view says is that really all the sacraments are are these pictures that are to stir up some sort of devotional thoughts within us, but that's really all they are. They're just pictures of something. 
They don't convey anything other than just a uh, physical representation of some sort of spiritual reality. Uh, and those, there are two forms of that. Sacraments are mere devotional aids, or sacraments are merely how to give testimony to our faith. So those are, those are ways in which we wrongly understand how sacraments work. What we said is uh, we needed to ask the question, uh, does God really do something in the sacraments or not? And the, re- the Reformed, and obviously based on what we're saying, what we would say is the biblical answer is yes, God does do something through the sacraments. So how? How do they do that? Uh, great quote here from uh, Leonard Vanderzee. This is how he articulates the way the sacraments work. The sacraments operate, one, by the power of the Holy Spirit, two, through physical elements, three, when united with the Word, and four, when received in faith. So we'll briefly look at each of these. First, we receive Christ in the sacraments through the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism talks about this. It's by fa- is it by... Sorry, it is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his blessings. Where then does that faith come from? Here's their answer. The Holy Spirit produces it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel. No issues with that, right? And confirms it through our use of the Holy Sacrament. So what's important to recognize is that um, this really is just bread and just wine. Uh, when we baptize a baby or a, an adult, it is just water that we're using. However, what we, are, what we believe to be occurring is that the Holy Spirit uses these physical elements uh, and actually does accomplish His work in and through them. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we receive Christ in the sacraments through physical elements and ritual actions. Here's another quote from Van der Zee. As the Word brings us Christ for our faith to grasp through hearing, so the sacraments bring us Christ for our faith to grasp through seeing and tasting and touching. Both Word and sacrament bring Christ to our souls by faith through the Holy Spirit, but in the sacraments we get Christ in a way that is particularly suited to our humanity. We get Christ through water, bread, and wine. So we receive the same Christ in the sacraments that we receive through the preaching of the Word. It's not as though there's a different Jesus or a different Christ. But we receive Him differently, in a different manner. Um, Rather than through the proclaimed Word, it's through these ritual actions with water, bread, and wine. Thirdly, uh, we receive Christ in the sacraments when these physical elements are joined to the Word. This is a simple but really important point that the Reformers were really big on. Um, without the explanation of the Word, then they really are just bare signs. Um, w- without the words of institution, um, these, these remain just bread and wine. Uh, so the, the, the physical elements are joined with the proclamation of the Word. That's one of the reasons that one of the big emphases of the Reformation was that word and sacrament always go together. Fourthly, we receive Christ in the sacraments through faith. So it's the same Christ, as I said, that we receive in the preaching of the word, but we receive him differently. Yet in both cases, it is through faith by which we receive Christ. Um, So a quote here from, this is actually Robert Bruce, but he's quoted in Van Der Zee's book. Do you ask what a new thing we get in the sacrament? I say we get Christ better than we did before. We get a better grip of Christ now. That same thing that you possess by the hearing of the word, you possess now more largely. For by by the sacrament my faith is nourished. The bounds of my soul are enlarged. And so when I had put a little grip of Christ, when I had but a little grip of Christ before, as it were betwixt, 
my finger and my thumb. Now I get him in my whole hand. For the more my faith grows, the better grip I get of Jesus. And then that quote from Vanderzee, faith receives, faith grasps, faith trusts what God has done in Christ. Faith does not make it happen, for it has happened long before our faith was there to receive it. In fact, faith is not a human work at all, though it seems to be. It is the opening of the heart by the Holy Spirit. So faith plays no causal role, whatever. And what he's saying here is that faith is this instrument by which we receive Jesus. And that is true in the sacraments as well. So that it doesn't happen apart from faith, okay? His point there at the end, and uh, there's another quote from Van Der Zee, is to say that um, Jesus is objectively put forward in the sacraments. There's still the question, though, of how and whether we would receive him. It is only to faith that, is rece- that receives the full blessings of what Jesus has done for us. So again, it's not automatic. And still say Jesus is objectively present, just as when the gospel is proclaimed in word from the pulpit, Jesus is present. Now, he will be received by faith by his people, but there are others who will not receive him in that moment, and yet he's still objectively present and set forward. Same is true in the sacraments. So that's a very brief summary of how the sacraments work. We'll get into some of um, baptism in particular. I'll take like a couple very brief questions, and then we'll move on. Maybe brief responses is maybe the better way to say it. Any questions on this? How the sacraments work? Yeah, Clint. Yeah, no, there, I, well, I don't know. I've never had, it shouldn't, the question was, are there PCA churches in which the proclamation of the word is not accompanied by the sacrament, or sorry, when the sacrament might be administered without the proclamation of the word? There shouldn't be, um, and I'm not, I've never been a pre- present in one. Um, it's a strong tie between word and sacrament, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any uh, Reformed church that would do that. So, Okay, um, baptism then. This week what we're going to look at is uh, baptism generally. Next week we will talk about infant baptism. So you can save your infant baptism questions for next week. Because uh, right now we're just going to talk generally about what baptism is. And then some of, uh, I want to get to at some of the very practical importance to us. Um, and maybe I think last week I didn't do as good a job of that. It was a little more theoretical and explanation of theology, but these things are so intimately practical and important for us. So we want to get at that too and how Jesus works in us through these things. So baptism, what is baptism? Well, the Old Testament background is circumcision that comes in Genesis 17. Um, I'll just read, I've got 9 through 14 for you there in Genesis 17. This is God's, he's made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He confirms the covenant, or he, cre- he makes the covenant In Genesis 15, Genesis 17 then, he gives the sign and seal of the covenant, which is circumcision. Here's what he says. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. 
Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Quick word on this. Um, If you look at verses 10 and 11, the sign and seal is so closely associated here with the promise of the covenant that God says in verse 10, this is my covenant. Okay? Did it again. Okay. Um, it's, it's connected to, it's so closely united to, these, uh, to this sign that he can say, this is my covenant. Uh, another thing to notice about this is that th- this, is the, uh, this is a rite that is showing covenant membership. And you notice, too, that this is not something that is purely um, ethnic in how it's administered. It is the case, of course, that this is a generational promise that's made to literal children of Israelites. But notice also that he speaks specifically about those who would come in from the outside, Gentiles through various ways that would become a part of this covenant community, would also then receive the sign of the covenant, and then uh, whose male children also would then receive that sign. So it's important to notice that, and this fits with the promise of Genesis 12, where God tells Abraham, it's going to be through you, through your seed, that I'm going to bless the world. And so we should expect to see even Gentiles early on. So that's Old Testament background with circumcision, this rite of entrance into the covenant community that is both a sign and a seal of that covenant promise. Go to the New Testament, and we won't read all of these verses here. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission, where baptism is explicitly called for. Notice again the connection with the nations there. I think that's a significant point um, relative to what we just mentioned about Genesis 17. Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Then he goes on to say that this transcends other ways in which we would identify ourselves. Through ethnicity, uh, vocation, slave or free, or male or female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. Romans 6. This is a big one. 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then Colossians 2, For in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, ultimately referring to his death, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there's this connection here between circumcision and baptism. Um, In the way in which circumcision was related to the covenant with Abraham, so baptism is related to the new covenant. Okay? So this is a significant uh, connection here of, uh, of baptism now being in the new covenant, this rite of entrance into the visible church, and signifies all these things here that John Murray has in the quote that I'll read. He says, Baptism signifies union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's because believers are united to Christ in the efficacy of his death and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his grace, that they are one body. They're united to Christ and therefore to one another. Of this union, baptism is a sign and seal. So that's where we see some of baptism in the scriptures. You might have questions about how this relates to infant baptism, and we'll talk about it next week. Uh, But those are some basic, those are a lot of the chief passages in the New Testament that speak specifically of baptism. 
Now, uh, baptism in the Reformed confessions, how this then was understood, how these passages were interpreted um, by the Reformed confessions and in, in, um, in the tradition in which we now stand. Here's what they say in the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism. How does baptism remind you and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross is for you personally? Think about how practical this is um, for you. How does it remind you of that? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washed away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away my soul's impurity, in other words, all my sins. So there is, um, while it's not merely a sign, it's not merely symbolic, it is still symbolic. And that's some of what the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, is getting at here. Then the Westminster Standards, Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 28, paragraph 1. Here's a, and the, the larger catechism, 165 below, says essentially the same thing. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, it's the rite of entrance into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. So uh, it's often called the sacrament of initiation. That's how Michael Horton talks about it, and I think that's a helpful way to think about baptism. It is the sacrament of initiation into the visible church, the covenant community, as articulated here. Questions as to what baptism is? Yeah, Jason. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I see all through that as you know, a coincidence with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So yeah. The Spirit comes on them and they have the tongues and they reference the Old Testament pouring out of the Holy Spirit and mm-hmm. they be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. Does that, does that make baptism uh, primarily a, a, a coincidence with? Receiving the Spirit. Right, yeah. Um, Jason's question was, given Peter's sermon in Acts 2, specifically 38 to 40, where Peter says, his promises for you, for your children, for all who are far off, and he's just said, repent and be baptized, and it's at Pentecost, which is the outpouring of the Spirit. So Jason's question is, uh, is baptism, in general, the time in which one would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit due to its association with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? That's the question. Okay. Um, I, I would say that... Or, and or is there significance to the timing of that? Yeah, yes. One thing about the timing of it, there's something that um, we get a... Right. We get a lot... We, we can get in a lot of... Um, in a lot of muddy, murky waters when we start looking to Pentecost to be normative for the church. Um, that's something that is um, what we would say is redemptive, his, redemptively, redemptive historically unique that's happening. This is the outpouring of the Spirit on the church. 
um, in a way that's given, in the, the manner it's given is the first time that it's been given in that way, and it's creating the church, lots of different things happening. So in general, we need to be careful of that. Um, because of that, too, um, where there is this, uh, there is the pattern there of I'm believing and then I'm being baptized, which is still the pattern that we recognize for adult converts today. Um, as far as when the Spirit works, again, the way that the Confession of Faith would talk about this in chapter 2, or sorry, paragraph 2 of chapter 28, is that the blessings, and obviously the outpouring of the Spirit, is, is a blessing associated with the Spirit, or with baptism, um, are not so inextricably tied to the moment of administration um, that you would have it without. So does it happen in some cases where the baptism, water baptism occurs and that person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit in that? Um, Is that possible? Absolutely. Um, Does that happen 100% of the time? No. Um, Do we know percentages on that? No. (laughs) Um, So this is where... um, where, again, where we receive the benefits of baptism um, through faith, but, um, but we don't want to downplay the language that the Scriptures use for baptism as well. So um, there's some unique things happening in Acts 2, but we still have to deal with that issue in the way Paul talks in Galatians 3 and Romans 6, and we'll really address some of those next week because it's less of an issue for people to think, Something significant happens in baptism to those who are adults and have professed faith and are receiving this sign and seal. I think probably greater discomfort arises when we say, well, how does this apply then to infants? So we'll talk some about that next week. John, were you raising your hand? Yeah, Yeah, I'll give a quick answer to this because we'll talk next week. Um, There is this... uh, Repeated call, particularly in Deuteronomy, um, to be circumcised of heart. There's a continual call where you've received this, this outward sign and seal that, is, that, that, does, that, that corresponds to the covenant with Abraham as baptism corresponds to the, covenant, uh, to the new covenant. And it's a promise coming to this person, this child, and the continual call is to continue to believe that promise and that your heart would then be circumcised as well. So the benefits received there were to faith just as they are in baptism now. Yes, Andrew. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, His, Andrew's question was, uh, who should administer? Uh, and um, this gets back to the significance of word, a, couple, a few things. One is that, um, in, uh, one is to see the connection between word and sacrament. So in our denomination, ministers of the word are those who administer sacraments because of the close relationship between the two. Uh, the, the sacraments were given to the church as a whole and not to just to individuals. And so for that reason, there's this, the institutional aspect of the church is such that they, um, through their leaders, then administer these sacraments and aren't things that we would just do on their own. Um, 
that said, um, that's not to, there are unique circumstances and things like that where um, there are what we would say irregularities that don't invalidate the reality. Um, but yes, um, given to the church, administered through ministers of the church. Yeah, I, yeah. Let's. We might need to end up taking this. We we'll talk afterwards some. But go, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so, some discontinuity in that. Yeah, um, and I, if you look at Israel's history too, there are various ways in which the Passover feast was celebrated. There are various times in which particular. I mean, at one point they have to travel very, very far to go partake of the sacrament of the Passover, which is different than when it was administered when it was in homes, um, where you just have fathers uh, administering to children. So there's, there's some diversity in how those things are administered based on where Israel is in redemptive history. In the same way, um, we're in a different stage of redemptive history. Um, so that changes things as well. Okay. Yes, no question from Doug. Um, I think being baptized twice is an uh, irregular anomaly. Um, I mean, Paul says one faith, one baptism, the, with it being sacrament of initiation. I mean, I certainly understand, and we want to be gracious in how, like, there are differences on the sacraments. These are not differences that are determining whether a person is a Christian or not, whether um, it's not one of those questions. So, obviously, there are cases where people have been rebaptized because they think of baptism primarily as a profession of faith or a sign of my profession of faith. And so, therefore, now I must do it um, because I believe now, and maybe I was baptized earlier and I didn't believe. So, what we said last week is that a baptism or that uh, the sacraments in general as being covenant signs of seals and signs and seals that point first and testify not to the presence of faith but to the promise of God in this covenant. Then it's not. Um, then it's not a bearing witness to a profession of faith. It's bearing witness to the promise of God, and um, and so we'd say, yeah, there's not a reason to be uh, baptized more than once. Okay, let me move on to what does baptism do. If you got further questions, please feel free to email me or grab me afterwards. I know there there are plenty of huge questions that we have to move quickly through, but there is an avenue to talk about them. Just not here. (laughs) Um, What does baptism do? Uh, Here are some things that I want us to see as being very practical benefits of how a baptism works, uh, how how Jesus continues to use it in our lives. Baptism signifies and seals union with Christ, which gives us a new identity. Romans 6, 3, and 4 What's so important about this, too, and we could have quoted Galatians 3 here as well, but there, there is a new identity that is yours when you have the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit placed upon you. Uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson says that, you, that the whole of the Christian life can be subsumed under baptism in that naming ceremony. 
because of all the significance of having this new identity in which you are now united to Jesus and that changes your, all of your relationships. What fundamentally defines you now, as Paul says in Galatians 3, is not your ethnicity, it's not your vocation, it's not even whether you're a male or female primarily. Those, don't, those are not abrogated, those distinctions aren't done away with. Obviously, we're still male or female, obviously we're still a particular ethnicity, but what fundamentally defines you is your union with Jesus. Jesus defines you. You have a new identity, and that comes through baptism. Um, so that, that's one, one aspect. Baptism signifies and seals forgiveness of sins. This is uh, Acts 2. We could have also quoted this for the outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, signifies and seals new birth. Signifies and seals adoption, Galatians 3. Signifies and seals resurrection, uh, that same passage in Romans 6 and then Colossians 2. Uh, and then, th- this is uh, another important practical one, it marks the entrance into God's family, and so we can talk about uh, a new identity personally, and that who you are is now fundamentally defined by Jesus, but you have a new corporate identity too, in that your family is now this church, this body into which you were baptized. And uh, so baptism emphasizes this unity of the church and that when you profess faith, when you are united to Jesus, you are immediately united to, we're united to one another as well. And so baptism emphasizes that unity and it emphasizes the community of the church as well. You think of the significance of the vow that we as a church take when we baptize a baby. And that final, the initial vows go to the parents, the final question goes to the congregation where we make a promise before God to assist these parents in raising this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, And and of course, Paul has many references in the uh, New Testament to the church as God's family. And this can push back on some, uh, some tendencies, I think, that we can have even to raise up the nuclear family, the biological family, to a level beyond that which the New Testament does. This is very important. Uh, Here's how uh, Jamie Smith says this. What counts most as family is not the closed nuclear unit that is so often idolized as the family. Instead, the church constitutes our first family, which is both a challenge and a blessing. On the one hand, it challenges yet another sphere of... That should be rabid, not rabbit. (laughs) It's got some real issues. Yeah, those rabbits, they do whatever they want. So autonomous. Uh, it challenges yet another sphere of rabid. I think that was a, um, another, yeah, one of the dictating, dictation error. Uh, sphere of rabid autonomy and late modernity, the privacy of the family. On the other hand, it comes as a welcome relief. We don't have to raise these kids on our own. So that's a helpful corrective for us. We take very seriously God's uh, wonderful covenant promises to us that are to us and to our children. At the same time, uh, the New Testament will push back on our idolatry of the nuclear family by saying the church is the people of God and is the family of God. So we can be challenged on both ends there by uh, whichever way we, uh, we go. Uh, baptism marks us out from the world. There's great uh, renunciations in the old liturgy for baptism in the Book of Common Prayer, where the, the call over and over again is to say, you answer this question with, I renounce them. Talk about sin, the devil, all these things. You say, I renounce them. And so it's marking uh, you out as a member of the people of God and apart from the world. 
then baptism marks our entrance into God's, and this is, I want to take a little different tack here, into God's missional community, that is the church. So it's not just a membership in this family that is just a family for the sake of being a family. It's being baptized into this community of people, which is the instrument, the sign, the foretaste, and the instrument of of God's kingdom in the world. So as you are baptized into the church, you immediately are baptized into a missional vocation, if we could say it that way. You are a part of God's mission as you are baptized into this community of faith because that's what the church is, is God's missional community. And so there's, there's um, outward-facing significance to your baptism, if we could say it that way. So how can we then give ourselves to the grace of baptism, grace of God in baptism? A few practical ways uh, for. One, uh, remember your own. Remember your own baptism. Uh, that you have this new identity both individually and corporately. And so I mentioned this last week. John Wesley's mother used to tell him when he disobeyed, No, sir, you may not. You are baptized. And, uh, and what she's getting at there rightly is to say this impacts who you are. And if you think back to Romans 6 where Paul identifies baptism with being united to Jesus, he goes on to say... Um, Uh, do not let sin reign in your mortal body anymore. Why? Because you belong to Jesus now. You've died with him. Sin does not reign over you anymore. You've been raised with him. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Live in accord with who you really are. Baptism reminds you of that. This is who you are. Live in accord with your fundamental identity as one united to Jesus that is signified in, in baptism. Improve your own. That's weird language, I know. Uh, Improve your baptism. Um, What I want to say here is that baptism is a source of assurance of God's promise to us. As you remember, you can look back and see God's faithfulness to you. This promise of, uh, of Him moving towards you in grace, maybe before you move towards Him. Certainly before you move towards Him, but that's signified in baptism for you. And here's how the larger catechism talks about this, and that's where the language of improving comes from. How is our baptism to be improved by us? The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, and our engagements. By growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament. By drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized. For the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. There are a lot of things said in that paragraph. Uh, But you see, these are all the benefits, and this is where even some of our conversation last week, these are ways in which the grace of God in baptism continues to you well beyond the time at which it was administered. The Holy Spirit continues to bless you uh, 
through your baptism even, as we continue to, by faith, appropriate all of these good things that are signified and sealed to us in this sacrament. So the call is to improve on it, and it's the spectrum of the Christian life, really. Think about being in temptation. You think about struggling with assurance. Westminster Divines say, look to your baptism. Look to your baptism and improve on that. Be, Be assured of what God has done for you in Christ. And then a quote, I I don't know if I have this on the handout or not, but a a quote from uh, Dr. Ferguson that would get at this ongoing reception of the the grace of baptism. He says, "It's it's not my faith that saves me, it's Christ who saves me through faith. And so we continue to enjoy these benefits by faith long after the administration of it. Uh, take seriously the symbolism, those things that we've just discussed. Again, it's not to say that there's not, um, when we say it's not merely symbolic, we're not saying that there's not symbolic value to it. There is. It's just more than that. So take seriously that symbolic uh, value in, in a way similar to the way the Heidelberg Catechism talks about that. Surely as you are washed with water, so surely have you received the Spirit and been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Finally, take your vow during a baptism seriously. So if we think about the church as the New Testament describes it as a family, we are taking vows to our family members when we answer that final question when a child is baptized. That's a really important thing. Uh, this is a promise before God that we are making. And it is a, uh, a beautiful thing. There's emotions wrapped up in it. Um, what we have to fight against is allowing the legitimate sentimentality of the moment to overshadow the seriousness of what's occurring. We're promising before God to help that family raise that child, and that's a huge promise to make. Uh, Again, further reading, uh, Mysteries of God and Means of Grace, where I got the, uh, took that from Horton for the title of this class. It's the name of the article that's listed there. Uh, I recommend that in particular as a great article-length summary of what sacraments are, how they function, what baptism is, and then um, Lord's Supper as well. Uh, We have, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) excuse me, we've got um, maybe a time, time for one question or two. Yes, Max. Okay. Yeah, I have to just disagree with the last part, um, because there are all sorts of lexical studies that have been done to try and determine what baptizane means, and in the end, you end up really having to say, it means to baptize. There are instances uh, in which uh, there are different things happening with water, and, uh, and so some have said, it means to immerse. Some have said, it means to dip. Some say, it means to wash. Uh, 
And so the lexical argument there is, a, is one that we don't have strong footing on which to stand. Um, that is one understanding of the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, I, I think that those are, those, they're much more closely related um, as to how and when we receive the Spirit. Um, any, any other questions? Yeah, with Acts 2, yeah. You know, I don't know the answer to that. You'd have to ask one who's more familiar with the Baptist perspective on baptism. Uh, the question was, is that then reflective of uh, why, with a, the, a Baptist associating uh, baptism as one of being uh, justification um, rather than uh, and being entrance into the Christian life rather than being an ongoing uh, benefit of sanctification like pouring? And does that have to do with the mode? And I don't know the answer to that as to whether that's the reason why. Um, we can talk, I mean, mode is a kind of a hotbed question. I'll say quickly, Romans 6, uh, many will point there and say this is where immersion is found. Um, what's actually being symbolized there is not just death for the two points. One is not just death uh, being symbolized. Paul says it's about resurrection as well. And the way that people were buried in the first century was not in the ground. It was actually in a tomb in the side. So the symbolism where we think of down and up is not symbolism of being entombed in first century. Um, and the other thing is to say it's the association of all of the blessings of being united to Christ and not merely with one aspect of it. And so it is due to Acts 2 that our practice is one of pouring. There are some who uh, look to sprinkling as the cleansing blood of Jesus as the reason then that they would sprinkle. Um, we don't need to get into modes of, or debate about mode. Um, the, uh, yeah, if anybody wants to talk about that, I'm happy to talk more. We've got to stop right now. Um, it's almost, yeah, it's ten till. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that uh, in Christ we have a new identity, both individually and corporately. Thank you for the outpouring of your Spirit. Um, Thank you, Lord, that all these things are signified and sealed by and in our baptism. We pray, Lord, that we would magnify the importance and significance of this and that we would continue to uh, be transformed um, by you and your spirit as a benefit of our baptism. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.